was reading a story about uh, a young college student uh, who had just kind of started out and was feeling uh, the struggle of being a college student, decided to send his dad um, an email, a Facebook message, and you can kind of see the message up on the screen here and what was being asked for between the lines. It said, uh, dear dad, school is great. Making lots of friends, I'm studying very hard. Uh, with all my stuff, I simply can't think of anything I need. So if you'd like, just send me, just send me a card as I would love to hear from you. Love, your son. <laughs> Let me show you the dad's reply. Dad sent the email back. He said, I know that astronomy, economics, and oceanography are enough uh, to keep even an honor student busy. Do not forget that the pursuit of knowledge is a noble task and you can never study enough. Signed, Dad. Right? Pretty, pretty good, pretty good. And uh, uh, the good news is that today is Father's Day, so let me uh, wish you all um, a, a happy Father's Day. It is uh, good uh, to see all of you here. I was telling Cheryl on the way to church this morning that um, statistically Father's Day is the second least attended Sunday of the year. Um, and so uh, Mother's Day, packed house, Father's Day, um, we tend to stay home. So uh, it's, it's great to see you here. So that's the good news. Today's Father's Day. Uh, the bad news is, is that today we're uh, studying Jesus's parables about money, all right? And uh, I'll kind of explain that uh, months ago when I was putting this series together, uh, Father's Day just was not really on my radar, to be totally honest with you, as I was playing out the series. And as it got closer and closer, I started to look at what we were doing each week, and I realized that I had scheduled on a special Sunday, I had scheduled Jesus' parables about money. And I said, ah, maybe I had to change this. It's not too late. Nobody really knows uh, the way the weeks were laid out anyway. Maybe I should change it. And then I started to think about it. And I said, you know what? Uh, Scott, what Scott said during off uh, offering was right on that. I know a lot of fathers that really worry about this issue, that really worry a lot about money and worry about providing. Um, and beyond that, a fair amount of Jesus' teachings about money have to do with our understanding that he is a good father and, and that we can trust him and that he's going to care for us. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So I decided to uh, just kind of plow forward with this idea. Not going to be heavy-handed. I wouldn't do that on Father's Day. Uh, not going to be shaming. I wouldn't do that. We're just going to sit back, relax, and read some stories, okay? Um, now, the interesting thing about this topic of money and Jesus' parables about money is that Jesus and, and the Bible in general talks a fair amount of, about this. Let me show you this uh, from one of my commentaries, College Press commentary. It said, Jesus uh, talked much about money. 16 out of the 38 parables were concerned with how we handle money and possessions. In the Gospels, an amazing one out of 10 verses, 288 verses, deal directly with the subject of money. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, uh, less than 500 verses on faith, and more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Can you believe that? The Bible has a lot to say about this subject. Now, we're not going to study 16 parables today. Uh, we're, we're just not going to do that, but we're going to study three. And we're going to look at some of the teachings of Jesus on the subject of money and what he had to say about it. And the first, John uh, did a great job reading that for us. The first story is found in Luke 12, if you want to look in your Bibles. Um, and, and this is a story about surplus. Uh, this is a story about, nice problem to have, right? Uh, a story about what happens when you have more than when you need. The story's about a guy that had a big crop, huge crop came in, no place to store his crops, nice problem to have. Uh, and it's actually a problem that most of us work our whole lives to achieve, 
right? We're, we're trying to get into a position where we have a surplus. There was a study that came out a few years ago and they asked people across all income levels. So whether you're making $20,000 a year or you're making $2 million a year, they said, what would it take for you to feel more content and more happy with your financial situation? And across all economic levels, the answer was the same. It was about 20% more about 20% more, and I'd really feel content, and I'd really feel happy that we are working and trying to achieve surplus. So what do you do when you have a surplus? Well, uh, a couple verses later, Jesus is actually going to address another issue that I want to address before we talk about surplus, and he addresses the issue of need. What do you do when you have less than you need? What what, what attitude should you have? And Jesus addresses this. Like I said, this is just uh, less than 10 verses later. Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap or have a storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? I'm not a birds guy, so a lot. But um, who of you by... We always skip the birds at the zoo. Does anybody else do this? Can't come to the bird house? I don't want to see birds. But anyway, um, I'm going to get a couple angry emails about this, I suspect. I think this is a bird's crowd. But anyway, all right. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Uh, since you cannot do this uh, very little thing, why are you worrying uh, about the rest? Consider the wildflowers. Uh, They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the the grass of the field, uh, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan runs after all of these things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom." Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where there is no thief that comes in and no moth that destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus addresses this subject of when you have little or you wish you had more, a lot of times the way we react to that is with worry. And when it comes to, worry, uh, when it comes to money, a lot of people are in a position of, of worry. And he reminds them, the way he kind of addresses this is he reminds them of the generosity and kindness of God. He says, God is a good father. Great text for Father's Day. God is a good father. He is a providing father. He's going to take care of your needs. He's going to provide, the Bible calls this your daily bread. This goes all the way back to Israel in the desert, that they were in the desert. They had so little. They were wandering. They were heading to the promised land, but they weren't there yet. And they were in the middle of the desert. And God used to every morning provide for them bread when they'd walk out of their tents. They'd walk out and it was this manna, this what is it bread is what they used to call it. And um, God gave it to them to survive and thrive in the desert. And then throughout the Bible, this is just a reminder that God provides for our daily needs. He provides our daily needs. Bread. So with someone that has too little, the concern is that worry is going to consume uh, your life. The earlier story John read, when you have surplus, when you have much, it's not a concern about worry. What would you be worried about? It's a concern about a lack of mission and a lack of purpose settling in on your life. Do you see the goal of the guy in the story? Let me put it on the screen for you. Verse 19. Here's what becomes his goal when he realizes he has a surplus. It's take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Um, it, it's not a problem to make more than you need. It's, it's not. 
That's not the problem of this text. That the problem is not surplus. The problem is having a, a lack and a, a lack of purpose and a sense of purpose. Mission for this guy. Mission was replaced with leisure. And I'm telling you, this story John read for us earlier. This story is the American dream. Uh, laid out right in front of us. Jesus was talking about this uh, 2,000 years ago. The American dream is I will get enough extra, I will get enough surplus, and I can sit back, relax, and retire uh, at the beach. And I've said this to you before, but listen, I am saving your life right now. Because statistically, we know that people that retire and give their life to leisure, people whose sole purpose is leisure in retirement, they die young. Statistically, we just know this is true. They die younger than they should because you were created for more than leisure. You were created on purpose. You were created for a mission. God has a plan and a purpose for your life, and it goes beyond leisure. It goes beyond the beach. It's so much bigger and better than than that. So when you don't have enough, you have to remember God is provider. When you have more than you need, when you have a surplus, you have to remember that God has a plan, and God has a purpose for your life, and it's bigger and better than beach and vacation and leisure. Now, don't hear me wrong. Leisure's fine. Leisure's fine, all right? Vacation is fine. Late September, uh, my family's gonna go to Gatlinburg and we're gonna mini golf and eat great food and laugh together. Vacation is awesome. It just makes a terrible purpose. Leisure is awesome. It just makes a terrible purpose. There's nothing wrong with surplus. There's nothing wrong with surplus. Save money, have retirement accounts, uh, do all of that stuff. Retire young if you can. But understand, let me put this on the screen for you. You can retire from a job but you cannot retire from purpose. Just uh, all I would ask is that you understand that. You can retire from your job. You can retire from your career, but you cannot retire from purpose. God always has a plan, and God always has a purpose for your life, and it's bigger and better than we can uh, imagine. So some of you uh, with retirement on the horizon, I would ask you, what is your purpose going to be in your retirement? God has a plan. God has a purpose for you. Don't take all that money that you've spent a lifetime saving and just run to the beach. I am literally saving your life right now. You'll thank me later, all right? Give your life to something big that matters. Live out the purpose God has in store for you. I promise you, I promise you, you won't regret it. Here's story number two. All right, that part's done. All right, Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager, this is a really interesting story. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? I'm unemployed, my master's taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. When I lose my job here, people will welcome me into, into their houses. How's he going to do this? So he called each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450, right? Then he says to the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. He said, take your bill, make it 800, right? What do I care, Right? The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain uh, friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Pretty interesting story. 
All right, pretty bizarre story, but pretty smart, right? This guy kind of gets fired from his job and and he says, how on earth am I going to survive? I don't have a ton of marketable skills. I'm too uh, prideful to beg what I'm going to do. And he says, he gets this idea. He says, I will go to all of my master's debtors and I will cut their bill at least in half. And then when I'm fired, maybe they'll give me a job. Maybe they'll welcome me into their house. Maybe they'll uh, let me live with them on their couch, whatever, right? And it's interesting that the master initially criticizes this guy for kind of being dumb about his money, for not being wise about his money. The master said, you can't be my manager any longer and manage my money this way. You're just not being shrewd. You're being kind of lazy about it. And you can almost get the impression in this story. What's so interesting about it is it almost appears that Jesus is praising this guy for his dishonesty. But that's not what's being praised in this story. What's being praised, let me put it on the screen for you. What's being praised is his intentionality, right? It's not dishonesty that's being praised. It's intentionality. Before he was just being wasteful. Before he was just being lazy. Before he wasn't putting any thought into it all. And now he's being thoughtful. And now he's being strategic. And now he's being intentional. And that's what Jesus is praising here. And I think this is worth thinking about. Am I being strategic about money? Am I being Wise. I, I think that this involves generosity. I think this involves saving. And I think this involves spending. That we, uh, I have a six year old uh, boy. He's about to be seven in July. And uh, over the last few months, we've decided we want to start uh, teaching him a little bit about money. All right. This has not gone super well, but we're, we're, we're doing the best we can. And um, we've, we've decided that we want to teach him the 80 10 10 rule. And uh, this is kind of what I was taught in my young adult years, and I really like this model where you kind of live on 80% of whatever you get, Uh, you give to God about 10% of what you get, and then you save about 10%. So 80, 10, 10. And so we've got three jars for him and this is what you can spend. And, you know, he really just wants to grab all the money together and spend it all. And, you know, I'm like, dude, I get that. I'm that way too. But, you know, that's not wise, you know, 80, 80, 10, 10. And it helps us to think a little bit, uh, it helps us to think a little more strategically. Uh, This model does that. All right, when it comes to my 80%, I want to spend that money wisely. So how am I spending that money? The Jesus money, the 10% for Jesus, what am I giving that to? And then the 10% that I'm saving for something kind of big, uh, um, you know, we were thinking like, you know, someday a car or his college education, but it's going to probably take more than $2 a month for him to do that. So um, (laughs) we'll have to fill in some gaps. I'm not saying it's foolproof. It's just what it is, all right? Um, It helps us to think a little more strategically about our money. Um, and uh, how, how we're saving, how we're spending, and what we're giving our, our life to. And I think the story, this story goes a little bit beyond just being strategic because you can be strategic in the wrong way, right? You can be strategic for the wrong purpose. And Jesus actually will identify the meaning of this parable uh, is that it's a story about trustworthiness. It's about being strategic in a trustworthy way. Here's what Jesus says uh, at the end of the parable. He says, whoever can be trusted with very little can, uh, uh, whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with very much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. Uh, But if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Here's a real famous text from Jesus on this. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, 
heard this and they were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who are trying to justify yourselves in the eyes of others. God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. All right, so it's a story about being trustworthy. The other day, uh, my son Sam asked me if he could, uh, we have an app on my iPad of, called Story Central. And it's, a, a, it's an app just full of stories. And some of them read the story to you. And then some of you, you have to read yourself. And he said, can I have some story time? Well, also on my, also on my iPad are games and shows to watch and all of that. So I handed him my I, iPad and I said, you can have my iPad for Story Central. I've got to do a couple things around the house, but when I come back, I don't want to see you playing a game, right? I don't want to see you watching TV, whatever the case may be. This was a test. It was a test of his trustworthiness, and he passed the test, right? He was trustworthy uh, with, with the iPad, and the same is true in this story, that this is a test. Money is a test of our trustworthiness, and here's the truth that underlines this whole text. When it comes to money, God has a plan. God has a plan, and it's his. My, my original, I actually crossed it out when I was uh, kind of uh, redoing my sermon a little bit. My original line was, God has a plan for your money. But the point of this text is that it's his. <laughs> right? So that line doesn't really work very well. That when it comes to money, God has a plan, period. Right? Because it's all his, and he allows us to take care of it. And uh, what money is, uh, money is an invitation to join God in his purposes. This requires wisdom. It does. I'm going to tell you a story about me here in just a minute uh, where I was unwise because this does, it requires wisdom, it requires prayer, it requires listening, it, it requires trying to discover how does God want me to spend this money, what does God want me to do with it, and it's an opportunity to serve God. Um, money is just an invitation to join him in his purposes. And so Jesus' point here is that what can happen with some people is while money is an invitation to follow God, some people end up following money instead of God. You know, it's that part of the text, you cannot serve two masters, you'll be devoted to the one and despise, or, or you'll be either devoted or, or you'll despise. And what does he mean by that? Well, throughout this story, I think he gives us a few clues on what he, he means by it. Like, so one of the clues is that if you're not investing in kingdom ventures at all, I would kind of, that would cause me to think about, am I serving God or am I serving money? Jesus talks about the idea of using worldly wealth to gain eternal friends for yourself. The idea is that you invest in kingdom ventures, you invest in, in, in Jesus, you invest in his, his will and his desires, and you end up making uh, all of these friends here. And one of the great examples that I thought of as I was writing uh, this sermon is I thought about my mom, who was a very, very generous person with her time and with her money. She was, uh, I grew up in a very small church and she was that person in a very small church uh, that just baked for everybody. So if you told her on Sunday morning, I'm feeling kind of depressed, a lasagna was at your house. This will make you feel better. <laughs> Don't be depressed, eat lasagna, right? And, and, and she, would, she would bring lasagna or um, when uh, new people came to the church, she was the person that kind of dropped off cookies. Um, she was just very, very generous uh, that way. And I think she would be shocked. She died when I was 17 years old. And I think she would be shocked to learn that 500 people came to her funeral, right? Because she would have told you, it's just lasagna. It's just money. It's just, I, I'm, just, I'm not making a big impact. But she used worldly wealth and worldly possessions to serve and love others. And by doing that, she gained eternal friends. And that's the vision here 
is that we would use whatever God has given us, kind of a strange way to phrase it in this story, admittedly, but we would use whatever God has given us to gain eternal friends, to make a difference for the kingdom, to make a difference in people's lives. So I think kind of first question is, do I set aside some money that God has given me to do that? Am I making a difference in, in eternity? Am I being generous in that way? Another red flag when it comes to who you are serving is if the people in your life would say that you love money, um, you'll notice that Jesus said about the Pharisees that they, they, they love money. That's how they're described. Or if somebody in your life would say you're materialistic or uh, somebody in uh, your, your life would say that you love stuff, I would listen to that and I would think about that. If people regularly say you love money, you love stuff, you, you, this is important to you, I would think about that. Who am I serving? Um, if you're sneering like the Pharisees did at this sermon um, and this idea makes you angry, I would listen to that, Right? That why, why does uh, talking about money, why does that feel like a threat to you? You might want to think about who you're serving. And listen, um, this is as convicting to me as it is to anyone. Uh, I could tell you a number of stories about just uh, dumb decisions that I made when it came to money. Uh, that I don't ever re really remember my parents sitting down and, and talking to me about money. And uh, so I, and th this is not an excuse, just I don't ever remember that happening. And so as I became an adult, I just was kind of like a, um, uh, a pinball machine, you know, just kind of trying to make the best decisions that I could. I remember very early on, my first job ever, um, I was making about $23,000 a year. I was working for my alma mater in the admissions department. Um, and uh, admissions are not, it's not super lucrative career, but, um, you know, um, I had first started out in this job and I knew I needed a new car. Uh, because my car was really, really old. It had a ton of miles on it. And so I went out and I leased a brand new Oldsmobile Intrigue, right? Now, this job required me to be on the road constantly. And so I ran up the miles on this car. And at the end of the lease, I was, I was literally like forced to buy the car uh, because I had gone so far over my miles. And I was making about $23,000 a year and I ended up with a $350 car payment, right? And uh, just not the greatest decision uh, I've ever made in my life. And for a chunk of my life, I was just kind of responding to what I wanted and responding to what I thought I needed. And finally, as I grew into my adulthood years, I heard someone preach a sermon about stewardship. And it really opened up my eyes for me that none of this is really mine. That th this is God's money that he has stewarded to me, that I am a steward of God's money. And, and a whole new set of questions emerges when you begin to think of money that way. It's not what do I want or even what do I need or what do I desire? It's what does God want me to do with this? He's entrusted this to me. He's entrusted $23,000 to me a year, whatever your salary happens to be, whatever your retirement is. He's entrusted this to me. How does he want me to spend it? How does he want me to steward it? What does he uh, want me to, to do? And uh, I think for me, I'm just speaking for Steve Higgs now, I think the idea of my money uh, had become way too important to me. And I needed to begin to see money as, no, this is something God has entrusted me with and he has a desire about how I spend it. And it requires prayer, it requires diligence, it requires wisdom, all right? So just the point of all that is don't be like me, all right? <laughs> if you got a job that requires you to be on the road, don't lease.
Don't lease. All right. So anyway, all right. Last parable is uh, Luke 16. And I hesitate to include this because there's a little bit of controversy about this, about whether or not this is even a parable. Um, I personally think that it is, but I kind of want to close with this and then tell you another story at the end of it. And then we'll, uh, we'll be done. All right. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. So again, this is kind of what we're all striving for. And at his gate, uh, there was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what, f- what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Gross, right? Uh, the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger into water to cool my tongue. I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. Now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between uh, you is a great chasm that's been set in place, and those who want to go from here to there cannot, nor can anyone cross uh, from here to there to us. And he answered, then I beg you, send Lazarus to my family, for I have, fi- I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, uh, no, no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the grave goes to them, then they will repent. And he said to them, no, if you don't listen to Moses and the prophets, you will, uh, th- they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And Jesus is actually kind of predicting what's going to happen with him here. That he's like, man, if, they, if Moses and the prophets didn't mean anything to them, even me rising from the dead isn't really going to make a, a difference. So we've been talking about kind of a weird, scary parable, all right? So let's kind of digest this just for a minute. That Remember the purpose of parables that we've been talking about all throughout this series. The purpose of parables is to teach us what life is like in the kingdom of God. That in the kingdom of God, Jesus is our king and we are his people and all life is in the kingdom. This kingdom that if you become a Christian, you enter into this kingdom. It is a kingdom of grace where we are moved by the grace of our king. We are moved by the kindness of our king. We are moved by the generosity of our king. And so in the kingdom, we respond to each other in grace. We resp- as a result of Jesus' love for us, we respond to others with love. As a response to his grace shown to us, we respond in grace. In response to his kindness, we respond to others in, in kindness. This is life in the kingdom. We have our example, Jesus, and we are moved by that example, and that example causes us to treat other people differently. Listen, this is not a parable against richness, against being rich. There are plenty of people throughout all of time that have been rich, that have followed Jesus. This is a parable about someone who happened to be rich, but didn't want to live in the kingdom of grace. You can see it in his treatment of other people. There is no grace, no kindness, no generosity towards someone who literally lives outside of his home, right? As a matter of fact, the rich man is kind of uh, countered in the story against the dog, right? The dog comes and is kinder to the beggar than the rich man was. And this guy is literally living outside of, uh, outside of his home. So those, are, those two entities are played against uh, e- each other. And the idea of this is this guy is just not living in the kingdom. 
He, he's not been overwhelmed by God's grace. He's not been overwhelmed by his kindness. He's not been overwhelmed by his love. He's not living in the kingdom because when you are, and, and this is what we've been trying to move ourselves forward to a little bit, is when you're overwhelmed by his kindness and his grace and his love, it changes a lot of things. Changes relationships, slowly, but it does. It changes attitudes, and it changes money. It changes, that stuff becomes an opportunity to express God's grace. And, and this parable, I, I mean, I've studied this parable a lot through the years. It's not about being scared by the parable, right? That, that, that's never really the motivation in the gospel, is, is to scare us into obedience. It's not about being scared. You know what this parable does? It's about being motivated. That I don't want to live like that guy. I don't want to live like that guy. With a total absence of generosity. With a total absence of love. With a total absence of kindness. I don't want to be that guy. That's what this parable should motivate in us. So whatever that looks like for you as a steward of whatever God has given you, let this story kind of nudge you toward that, that this is how God is causing me to be kind. This is how he's causing me to be generous. This is what God is calling me to do. It's not about being scared by the parable. That's the wrong reaction because this is a story that Jesus told. So it's not about being scared by it. It's about being motivated by it. I don't, this is a, this is a sad life where God has been so great to you and you've not been great to others. It is a sad life and I don't want to live that life. Neither do you. So when I was a teenager, um, my home church, I, like I said, I grew up in a, um, in, a, in a little tiny church and um, our home church decided they were going to build a new building. We had a really odd building in my little church growing up. It was, it was literally like shaped like an igloo right? And uh, it had fallen into disrepair, and it was kind of falling apart, and we had started to grow a little bit. I think we were averaging like 80, 90 people somewhere right in there, that, which was more than we had had before. And so they decided to really make a, a difference in our community. Uh, let's go ahead, and we will build uh, a new church. And so they did a capital campaign, and they kind of started talking through the campaign about, um, you know, encouraging people to give. I think it was over the course of three years, uh, the, the campaign was, and um, what, what were we going to do? And I remember my parents, uh, my mom and dad, uh, started talking about it. What are we going to do as a family? What are we going to give as a family? And this conversation went on uh, for a long time. And um, they, my parents decided to do something that I have now uh, come to learn was fairly radical, <laughs> uh, as, I, as I've seen the generosity of others. My parents, in response to this capital campaign, decided to sell our house and move into an apartment, right? And um, they had been thinking about doing that anyway, just to be totally honest with you. But once the church started this kind of campaign and make a difference in the community and all that, my parents decided to, to sell their house and, and give almost all of the money to the new building. They kept a little bit aside, but almost all of it. And that sounds crazy to me. Uh, and I think it was. I, I think it was a little bit crazy. But you know what I remember from that, from my childhood? I just want to kind of express this through a teenager. I was a teenager at the time. Um, what that did in me is I observed my parents doing this, is what it did in me was I, I remember thinking as a teenager, when I grow up, I want to be just like them. When I grow up, I want to be just like them. And on this Father's Day in particular, Man, I want to invite you, parents and grandparents, I want to invite you to demonstrate generosity for your kids. 
be kind to strangers. Tip well, right? You know the worst tipping day of the week is? A number, a number of servers have told me this. The, the worst tip day of the week is? Yep. All the church people coming in. Refusing to be generous. Um, tip well. Give to others without expecting anything back in return. And your kids will see it. Your kids will see you do this. I promise you they will. Your kids will see it. And here's what will happen. They will understand God's grace better. They will understand God's grace better because they will say, I have an earthly father who is generous, so it's easy for me to understand a heavenly father who is generous. They'll understand God better and they will grow up to be generous themselves. Because I don't know about you, but as a parent, you have a list of things that your kids and uh, someday your grandkids, you have a list of things you want them to be, right? You want them to be kind. You, you want them to be helpful. You want them to get a J-O-B someday and get out of your house and all that stuff, right? But on my list, and maybe this is on yours as well, um, I would like to be able to see my kids as they eventually go into adulthood. I would like them to be described as generous. Um, I want them to be a generous uh, a generous man and a generous woman. And, uh, you know, Lila's, she's just six months old. So we got, you know, but with, with, with Sam, we want to begin to breathe this into him. And I'm telling you, mom and dad, on this Father's Day in particular, I think it starts with us. Begin to model this for your kids because the Bible says about God, it says that God so loved the world that he, he gave. Our God is a generous God. The gospel reminds us of our Heavenly Father's generosity. So we're going to celebrate that generosity right now in a thing called communion. And it's an opportunity for us to just kind of think about and celebrate our God's generosity. And it's an opportunity for us to pray, God, I want to be like you in this. God, I want to be generous like you. I want to love like you. I want to be kind like you. And so we're going to receive communion in, in just a few minutes. You'll find two cups stacked on top of each other. Um, one uh, has some juice representing Jesus' blood. The other has uh, some bread representing his body uh, that he gave for us, that he was generous and gave for us. Now, you'll note, you notice that we have new chairs here, right? If you'll look in front of you, um, there are uh, book racks on every other chair. In those book racks, there is a little holder for your empty cups. So if you want to leave your cups in the chair, you can do that. And that was just, that was a, a grace of God because we didn't order those little cups. Uh, they, they just came because God wanted us to have those, all right? So, um, so God so loved the world that he gave. Our God is a generous God. Let us be a generous people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the way that you have modeled generosity the way that you have modeled kindness. Um, man, I would love for Sam and Lila to look at Cheryl and I someday um, and say, I want to be generous like mom and dad. I want to be kind like mom and dad. That would be a win to me, but we already have that with you. We can look at you and say, man, we want to be like you. We want to be kind like you. We want to be generous like you. We want to be loving like you. Help us to do it. Help us to serve you more than we serve money. It's easy for money to take your place and for worry and anxiety and lack of purpose to, to take over and for us to all of a sudden be serving for leisure and serving for, for money. We want to be generous and kind like you. So as we receive communion and, and uh, take it together, um, just 
May we be overwhelmed by your kindness. May we be overwhelmed by your grace. Uh, it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As the emblems are passed, you can hold on to those, and I'll come back up in just a minute, and we'll receive them together as a church family.